Thank the sister for that wonderful musical number. He wants it all. Not that little part you kept over to the side, but all of it. He'll do a better job with it than we would anyway. gentlemen we are here <coughs> praise be to God for the grace the devil tried to discourage you all week long but by grace <laughs> we are here trial and tribulation assailed us but thank God for the grace. The grace woke us up this morning. And grace put us in our finest clothes. And despite the efforts of the enemy, by grace, we are here. Hallelujah. was short wasn't it can I get that uh, from the beginning please while we're working that out I would like to say praise the Lord for a woman who knows how to hold on while God is doing his thing <laughs> everybody is not cut out for the torturous route that God has my family on <laughs> But God put a woman in my life. I don't know what I did, if it was anything at all to deserve such a good woman. But amen. Nissa, I love you. And thank you for being a wonderful wife. Let this mind, I'm going to say it again. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. The battle for our religious liberty does not begin on the floor of Congress. The battle over our religious freedom does not begin in any courthouse. It begins in the mind. If you think you're looking at an infant with the word sex scrawled across her face, you are correct. This is an advertisement for a product, and since we are broadcasting, I won't name it. But this evening, we are going to talk about some of the assaults that Satan is waging on our minds. Because if we can lose our freedom here, mm -hmm. all right, may I have a B flat, please? And so now, before we begin, would like to invite the spirit to come upon this place particularly today 
as we talk about a little bit of prophecy. Liberty under fire. The fire is coming. And I'm going to give you the sermon right now in a nutshell in case you fall asleep or you got to leave. We must remain clear of mind so that we can discern what the Spirit is telling us about prophecy. We must read scripture and prophecy for ourselves and with that clarity of mind be able to put together the things as they unfold and we must stand. We must stand. sanctuary to fill every corner of our hearts give us understanding Lord and lift us up and of course take that old rascal Ryan Johnson and hide him way in the back and let Jesus speak to us today we pray these things that we would be consumed by the message this morning in thy holy name let everyone say amen. 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 See which way is straight. Let's read together from Daniel, the third chapter. Let's read. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, verse 6, and whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was a bit of a pyromaniac. He had what you might call, sister, a flaming personality. It was a firebug, I tell you. Nebuchadnezzar had this bad habit of burning God's people. So he went down into Judah, and you remember, God's people used to have two nations. There was Israel, there was Judah, but at this point, Israel was gone, and there was Judah, where the temple was. 
Nebuchadnezzar went down into Judah, and when he finally destroyed the temple, he didn't just kick down all the doors and spray paint everywhere. He burned it. There's an ancient manuscript that tells the tale of 50 Jews who were taken as slaves out of Judah and into Babylon. And for some reason, these 50 Jews would not conform to the Babylonian ways in such a manner that pleased Nebuchadnezzar. So he took these 50 people of God and he lined them up. And he didn't pull out his knife and stab them. He didn't pull out his nine and shoot them in the head. He burned them. And so now Nebuchadnezzar has erected this great statue, a golden image, gold from head to foot, 87 and a half feet tall. The statue was so tall that they had to customize a base in order to accommodate the weight and size and height of the statue. Where's Brother Tom? Is Brother Tom in here? But there you are. Many of you all don't know that Tom is also known as Too Tall Tom. <laughs> now, Tom has had more adventure in his life than many of us put together. Talk to him sometime. But one of the things that he used to do was race cars. So hey, Tom is bad. But when Tom was racing cars, he was so tall. I think he's taller than me, and I'm about 6'4". He was so tall that they had to customize a car and a cabin for him so he could continue to whoop people on the racetrack. This, this image of Nebuchadnezzar was so tall, they had to customize a base in order to accommodate this golden image, gold from head to foot. And we'll talk about why Nebuchadnezzar made this image all gold in a little bit. Now, at the time, the city of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, was under a state of restructuring. They were doing a lot of rebuilding in Babylon. The one legacy that Nebuchadnezzar left was all the buildings that he built in Babylon. And because they were doing all this building, they needed a lot of bricks. Now, you couldn't just go down to the Home Depot like you can today and get you some bricks and throw them in the truck and just go on to the east side of Babylon. In order to have bricks, you had to make them. And the process of making bricks was very similar to the process that was used in ancient Egypt when the Israelites were slaves. You'd go down to the river Euphrates, and in Egypt it was the Nile, but in Babylon, the river Euphrates, and you get some of that moist clay, and you put that clay together, and you make yourself a brick. Now, if you want to do it right, you'll get yourself some straw or some hay, and you'll put it down inside the clay. Now, what the hay does is it helps the clay to dry evenly, and it helps that clay brick to have a little bit of structure. Now, after you've made this clay brick, you can't just use it. The brick has got to dry. Now, I don't know if anybody in here has ever done any pottery, okay? But when you make something out of clay, mm -hmm, and then it dries, what's the next step? What is it? You got to bake it. So the next phase in the making of the Babylonian bricks was to bake it. And what do you call one of those ovens? 
It's called a kiln, K-I-L-N. So there were these ovens all over Babylon that were designated for baking bricks. And Nebuchadnezzar took some of these ovens into the plain of Dura. And he erected this 87 and a half foot tall golden image and put it on its pristine pedestal. And he said, everybody better bow down to this image or I'm going to cook you like tater tots in my brand new ovens. See, when the music plays, the word says, you best be bowing down or we will roast you in the oven, but there were three. Oh, praise God for the few. <laughs> there were three. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, church members who had been given these, these strange Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What do those names mean? All of those names mean, by the way, hail the god Baal. Mm -hmm. Three church members who were prepared. Three church members who had studied. And after all of the time that had gone by, after having been brought out as slaves from Judah, after having avoided the king's meat and drink, after having studied prophecy, after going to church week after week, after going to prayer meeting, after reading them little, those little burgundy books, finally, the fire had come. Their liberty was literally under fire. Today is a day, as Sister Stephen so eloquently pointed out, that we have set aside to talk about religious liberty. Why? What's the big deal about religious liberty? Surely there's something else we can talk about. Hmm? Well, my father came in town. Now, some of you all know my dad comes in town from time to time to check on us. Really, he comes to see the grandkids. He don't care about me and Nissa at all. <laughs> He's like, hey, how you doing? Where are the kids? You know. In fact, I'm going to get a runway and just let it land in the kid's window like that right there so he don't have to bother with us at all. Well, my dad was in town. And as fathers and sons will do, we decided to have some time together. So dad and I took Jalen. Jalen is my five-year-old, and we took her to the park. Carson, my three-year-old, four-year-old, just turned four, was at school. So dad and I and Jalen are sitting there, and Jalen's playing on the swings and doing her thing. And while we're talking, a group of kids came to the playground. And they looked a whole lot different than we look. Mm-hmm, whole different culture, whole different hair color, whole different skin color, they talk different, and they approach the playground, and Jalen, who's a whole lot friendlier than I will ever be, just walked up to these kids and was like, hi, my name is Jalen, let's be best friends. <laughs> you know. And my dad gets like a tear in his eye, you know, and he's sitting there like this right here, and I'm like, pops, what you crying for? It's just kids playing in dirt. Kids playing dirt, that's what they do. But see, my father came out of the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And so he remembers a time when Jalen wouldn't have been able to walk up talking about, hey, let's be best friends. And I'm from North Carolina too, better slow your roll. Mm -hmm. 
But I, not being from that era, do not have the same appreciation for how fragile a thing such as civil liberty is. Mm -hmm. I don't appreciate the way my dad does how great it is that we have such advances for Hispanics and Asian Americans and women and African Americans. I just can't see it. But a thing as fragile as civil liberty needs to be talked about from time to time. That's why we all tune in on our TVs to see what's going on with Trayvon Martin. Because a thing such as civil liberty needs to be checked on. It is fragile. It is the same way with our religious liberty. Because we live here in the United States and because we don't come from that era of reformation, we don't have the same appreciation for how fragile a thing such as religious liberty is. We take for granted our ability to come to church and shout hallelujah at will and go home. When I was reading an article the other day that just recently some people ran into a Christian temple in the Middle East with machetes and cut them to pieces for praising God. Also, I read that a gentleman had been given life in prison plus six hundred lashes with the whip because he sent a text message that did not jive with what the local government said he ought to be worshiping. Because we live here in the United States, it is difficult to appreciate how fragile liberty is, but the Bible says that one day men would hate us for the sake of Christ. Believe me, although we are in this eye of the storm, the fire is coming. Now, religious liberty does not have to always have a national scope or an international scope. There's people in this room right now whose liberty is under fire. I guarantee you there's a woman in this room right now who insists on taking her babies to church every week despite the fact that when she goes home, her abusive husband's going to be waiting on her to teach her a lesson with his fist. Your liberty is under fire. Well, there's a brother in here who's got a job and he needs that job. Particularly in this economy, jobs are hard to come by. You need the job and somebody got to keep the lights on. Somebody's got to make sure there's some bread on the table every now and then. But particularly here in Las Vegas, the things that are required of you on that job are not thus saith the Lord. What do you do when your liberty is under fire? The story of the three Hebrew boys is one of the most popular stories in the Bible. I read somewhere that there are people who have never cracked the Bible open, never even used the Bible as a doorstop, but they know the story of the three Hebrew boys. It is a quintessential example of liberty under duress. And so what we will do is just have a brief look at their life. Just a little look at what went on because those three boys, along with Daniel, there were four, they didn't just roll out of bed fireproof. They weren't born particularly resistant to heat. There was a process. Journey with me 
to about 18 years before the fiery furnace. It is the year, oh, about 600 B.C., and there's a new kid on the block. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He is a bad king, and he needs everybody to know it. Nebuchadnezzar is spending a majority of his time making sure that everyone understands that his daddy, yes, Nebuchadnezzar's father, is king. So while Nebuchadnezzar is out on the rampage, the word comes down to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi, your father has died. Long live the king. Oh, it's like that, is it? Now Nebuchadnezzar must begin to secure his legacy. And one of the first things that he does is he marches into a nation where God's people are called Judah. And he ransacks everything, burns everything, tears things down, and he takes with him certain captives out of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon took some of God's people with him. And among these people were Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. These four godly young men were taken as slaves, ripped away from their mamas and daddies, and taken off to the city of Babylon. Now the king had a horse, and all his people had horses, but the slaves, they ain't getting no horse. They had to walk. And I did a little research, and Babylon is 547 miles away from Judah. That's right. This was an arduous journey for the captives, for our three Hebrew heroes, along with Daniel. So they had to walk all the way to Babylon, and when they got there, they were tired. They were discouraged. They had watched their homes be burned and razed to the ground. Now, let me say, guys, it is not by accident that the devil likes to wait until we are down and discouraged before he makes his assault. He likes to wait until God's people are tired. Oh, ain't it always when you've had a rough day at work and you get home and the phone ring and that one thing you didn't want to hear is coming through the receiver? It is not by accident. So God's people were taken into Babylon and they were looking a little skinny and puny. Now Nebuchadnezzar looked among them and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take these people and we're going to train them in the Babylonian ways. We're going to teach them Babylonian theology. We're going to teach them Babylonian mathematics and all of this. But first of all, we need to fatten these people up. They're looking kind of rough, looking kind of raggedy under the edges there. So please, read with me. This is what the king did. And the king appointed them. Read with me, please. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Read on. Now among these were the children of Judah. Who are they? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Now hold on a second. So God's people were among this group. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to feed God's people mm -hmm, of the food from Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to feed the church people the food of the world. Can I go on? All right, read with me. 
But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, Daniel wrote this book, so he talks about it in first person. Daniel, along with his friends, his three friends, they decided we're not going to eat that food. See, I'm about to say something that's not very popular, but it's the truth. And if I don't tell the truth, the Lord will give me a whipping. There are certain things that we just shouldn't eat. There, I said it. And there are some things that we just shouldn't drink. There used to be a thing called, oh, help me, Lord, the health message. And last week, the pastor talked about the health message. Yes, he did. And he talked about the fact that some of us are suffering from ailments that we ought not to have because we are no longer observing the health message. But I want to talk about something else. Read this with me. And in all, read with me, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. See, there's something else in addition to the physical benefits of living the health message. <laughs> the word says, and I'm sure they were pretty, I'm sure they looked nice. I'm sure they were healthy, but the word says that the direct result of Daniel and his friends refusing to eat the meat from Babylon's table was that they were wise and they had understanding. The truth of the matter is it matters what we put into our bodies because one of the original purposes of the health message was not just so that we'd be healthy, but so that we would be clear-minded to hear and understand prophecy. That means that when we do not properly observe the health message, it clouds our minds. Satan is trying to cloud our senses. We can't hear the Holy Spirit over the sound of us licking the grease off our fingers. Yeah, I said it. Finger licking good. And so the first thing they did was they were clear-minded because they tended, they were the arbiters of, they guarded what came into their bodies because what you eat will affect how you think. And in these last days, we need to be as clear-minded as possible because the fire is coming. Now, there are other ways to consume the king's wine and his meat than just by what we eat. <clears throat> a little boy had a cold, and I've been fighting it all week. I think it may be finally catching up with me. There are other ways to consume the meat from the king of Babylon's table than what we eat. 
We must watch what we consume with our eyes. We must watch what we consume with our ears because that is equally effective in clouding our judgment, keeping us from understanding the word and hearing the wooings of the Holy Spirit. Let me give an example. So if you get off work and you get in your car and you turn the radio on and all you listen to on the way home is behind and half nakedness. And then you get home and you turn your TV on and all you watch is programming about behind and half nakedness. And then before you go to bed at night, you crack open that laptop and all you watch is behind and half nakedness. Believe me, when the hour of trouble comes along, you will take your word and try to communicate with God. And the first thing that pops in your mind will be behind and half nakedness. The fire is coming and we need to remain clear minded. Let's move on. Oh, it moves. Because they were clear-minded and because they could hear the Holy Spirit, the Word of God tells us that God gave them a certain understanding and an ability to discern prophecy and dreams because they were clear-minded. You got to remember, there were other church folk that came out of Judah Mm -hmm. But these four. So it says in the second chapter of Daniel, and this is not a sermon on prophecy. This is a sermon on preparing for the fire. But I got to go over this briefly because I want to talk about something. It says in the second chapter of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he did not fully comprehend. But the dream was of such impact that Nebuchadnezzar was impressed that it had come to him from a higher source. And so he asked all of his wise men, all of his senior wise men. Now the wise men at the time not only gave counsel to the king, but they were also experts in mathematics, experts in astronomy, experts in architecture. You know, they gave advice, but they were also smart. They were kind of like a mixture between Albert Einstein and Dr. Phil, okay? And so the king called in his wise men, and he said, look, I got a dream, and I don't remember what it is, and I don't remember the interpretation, even if I did remember. I need you to tell me. Now, moving through, these wise men could not tell the king his dream, nor could they interpret it. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... They worshiped the one true God, and they had remained clear-minded. And because of this, they were singularly mm -hmm, qualified to help the king out with his dream. And that's what happened. Daniel prayed to God, and God gave the dream to Daniel, and the word says he shared it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, let's be clear. It does say in chapter 2 that the dream was a prophecy. It wasn't just some random dream intended for Nebuchadnezzar. It was a prophecy. That word is used in scripture. Now, let's just take a look at this dream. Many of you know it, so I'm not going to spend forever. Pastor, you know I like my latest graphics, but I had to go old school on this. Sometimes there's no school like the old school. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
he saw a great statue. He saw an image. And the image was made of different metals. The head of this image was made of gold. And the arms and chest of this image was made of silver. Okay? Now the hips area of the image was made of brass. And the legs of this image was made of iron. And the feet of this image, let's get a nice photo, was a mixture of iron and clay. And as Nebuchadnezzar was looking at this image with a gold head and silver and brass and iron and iron and clay, a rock, a stone, carved itself up with no hands from the mountainside, flew through the air and hit the image at its feet and smashed it into a zillion pieces. Nebuchadnezzar did not know the meaning of this. What was the meaning of this, this alloyed statue and the meaning of this rock that smote it at the feet? And God provided the interpretation of the prophecy to his clear-minded people. Let's look at what the interpretation is. I'll read this. And whosoever the children of and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand. This is Daniel formerly talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Daniel goes on and says, And God hath made thee ruler over them all. Then Daniel gets down to the interpretation of the prophecy. He says, Thou, Nebuchadnezzar, art this head of gold. The head of gold on this statue is you, Nebuchadnezzar. However, the prophecy does not end there. Now, I want you to read this with me. Let's read 39 together. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Read on. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. What Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar was a very difficult thing to tell a king. What it says is, king, this head you see at the top, that's your kingdom. But after you, king. Now see, kings like to think that their kingdom is going to live forever. You know, long live the king, right? Old king live forever. But Daniel was bold and he said, after you are gone the way of the dodo king, another kingdom shall rise up inferior to thee. And that's what the silver arms represent. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would go away and another kingdom would come along that God represented by the arms of silver. But that wasn't all. That kingdom would go away and yet another kingdom would come along that God represented with brass. And it goes on down to the bottom... where the feet of the image were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And this mixture of iron and clay, if you read in chapter 2, signified that at the end, there would not be one king, there would be several countries mixed together, and they would not get along. It sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? countries, some strong like iron, some weak like clay, and they wouldn't be 
all hodgepodge together, but they would not get along until the rock comes along and smites the statue and all kingdoms shall go away. The rock, according to chapter 2, is Jesus. So what the prophecy was saying to Nebuchadnezzar was that, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom shall pass away. All kingdoms shall pass away. Only God's kingdom will last forever. Okay? We're down with that? Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. I mean, he was king. Those are hard words for a king to hear. He did not like the idea that his kingdom would pass away. But he did like the idea that the head of gold was his kingdom. Follow me now. Because Nebuchadnezzar wanted to say, my kingdom, not God's kingdom, me, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, shall last forever. Because Nebuchadnezzar wanted to spit in the face of Jehovah and say, your kingdom will never come. My kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, shall last forever. Because he wanted to say this, Nebuchadnezzar made his own image in real life. And he made it entirely of what? Of gold. That's why the image that he made in the plain of Dura with the furnaces was made of gold. That was Nebuchadnezzar sticking his tongue out at the master and saying, my kingdom will last from the head through the toes and it's just going to be me. Now here is why I dragged you all through this. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I really should use their Hebrew names, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They knew the prophecy. They had studied the scriptures for themselves. And because they were clear-minded, oh, follow me, saints, follow me. Because they were clear-minded and had studied the scripture for themselves and because the Holy Spirit had opened unto them the meaning of the prophecy, they were able to recognize the signs of the times. Check this out. Gold is a very valuable substance. In fact, before there was any paper money at all, Gold is what was used to determine the value of a nation or a country. Okay? Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not going to exhaust the resources of Babylon in order to create his golden image. There's only so much gold. And to take all of the gold out of the treasury and make a golden image, that could have been a problem. So what Nebuchadnezzar had to do, historians believe, is he had to reach out into the surrounding nations and regions and bring the gold to Babylon. So when 
Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, along with Daniel, when they observed the signs of the times and they saw that Nebuchadnezzar was bringing all the gold from the surrounding regions into one place, they knew that something was coming. In fact, according to Daniel, after he brought all of the gold together into one place, the next thing that happened is he made himself an image. In 2002, a new corporation called the European Union brought all of the surrounding nations of Europe together, or they're trying, into one bank, which is located in Germany. The purpose of bringing them together was so that they could all use one currency, one standard of money, and it is called, who knows, the euro. Now, this is old news. The new news is, because of the economic crisis that has befallen the earth, prophecy watchers are looking to see what will happen to the euro. Will it survive? Will it fail? Why do we care? We care because when we see Babylon reaching out into the other areas to bring the resources into one place, when we see the nations bringing the gold together into one place, when we see the valuables of the nations being cast together into one place, according to the way it went in Daniel, we might want to start looking for an image. Where's my text? Revelation chapter 13. And cause that as many would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. The fire is coming. But Daniel and Azariah, Hananiah and Mishael, they were clear-minded and they studied the scriptures for themselves. The time has come where we must study the scriptures for ourselves. We need to crack open prophecy, dust some of them books off the shelf, and begin to have a look for ourselves so that we can observe the signs because the fire. When I was a boy, my brothers and I have two brothers. We were so bad. Every summer, my mother and father, to get a break, they would send my brothers and I to stay with my grandmother. Now, I've talked about my grandmother before. Nana was blind. Nana was completely blind, okay? And we would go stay with Nana. Now, Nana insisted that every single week, all three of us boys had to have a haircut. 
Every seven days, we had to have a haircut so that we could have fresh cuts for church. And you had to cut, especially my hair, every seven days because if you let more than seven days go by, my hair would band together and like form a democracy. <laughs> if I to put a comb up in that hair, your hair take a vote. <laughs> we have voted. You ain't getting a comb up in here. <laughs> so one Thursday, it would begin on Thursday, Nana would begin to call people and try to find someone who could drive us to the barbershop because she was blind. Okay, now one Thursday, Nana started calling people. I remember the Cosby show was on, and my brothers and I were sitting there watching, and, and my grandmother was trying to find someone who could take us to the barbershop. She called, oh my, Leon. She called Pookie. She called Junebug. I don't know why y'all laughing. Everybody in here got at least one relative named Junebug. <laughs> and nobody was available to take us to the barbershop. Friday morning came along, and all of us, we ran outside to go play, and Nana's still on the phone trying to find somebody who could take us to the barbershop. It must have been, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, some of y'all are going to ask me, is that a true story? Yes, it is a true story. 2 o'clock in the afternoon, my brothers and I were standing outside, we're playing, and the front door opens, and Nana is standing there, and she's got on her good wig, the one with the little sparkles in it, and she has her red and white walking stick, and she's standing there like this. Nana felt her way down the steps, like that. Made her way across, feeling to where the car was. And Nana had this Buick from like, I don't know, 1875, something like that right there. And this thing was 100 feet long. She felt her way around the front of that Buick. She grabbed the ornament and just kind of like reminisced a little bit. And then she went over to the driver's side, opened the driver's side door, and got in the car. <laughs> My brothers and I were sitting there looking like this. Nana reached into her bosom. She had all kind of, I didn't want to know what all she had down in there. But she pulled out a set of keys and put the keys in the ignition. And you know them old cars, when you start them, they sound like you're about to do something, you know. You know what I'm saying? And she started this car, leaned over the seat, and rolled the window down. She said, what y'all looking at? Get in this car. <laughs> now, you know, sometimes things seem like a good idea when you're young. <laughs> Then you get old, have some kids, and you look back on it, and you're what in the world was I thinking? The three of us ran obediently over to the car, because Nana was scary, I tell you. And we opened the door. This is, you know, one big old, like, 80-pound door. And my older brother got in the front seat, and my younger brother, Rodney, and I got in the back seat. Okay? And then my older brother shut the door. Bam! Okay. Now, we're all sitting in this car. And Nana, I want you to see this view. Nana leans over, you know this one right here? Leans over the seat like this. And she says, okay, now here are the rules. If you see a stop sign, you need to say, Nana, stop sign. <laughs> if you see a traffic light, you need to say, Nana, red light. If you see somebody walking, you need to say, Nana, somebody walking. And my little brother was like, oh, you mean pedestrian. She took that stick, whap. Don't be grown. <laughs> Nobody likes a grown child. <laughs> she said, if you see something, you let me know. But most importantly, most importantly, don't you yell at me. 
She said, don't you yell at me. You better show me some respect. I don't care if this car is going over a cliff. You better show me some respect or I will kick your backside all the way to the bottom of that cliff. So it's up to you to decide whether or not my foot is the last thing you ever see in this life. And we're laughing, but some of us are in church today because we had grandmamas who knew how to talk. Uh-huh. And Nana backed the car out the driveway. And we're back there respectfully. Mailbox Nana, mailbox Nana, dog Nana, person Nana, person, oh Jesus. <laughs> now fortunately, the barbershop was just around the corner. You know, we didn't have to go all the way out to Henderson, you know, to get to the barbershop. It was right around the corner, but still, she drove at like 15 miles per hour as we called out the signs. Now, did we get there safely? I will allow the fact that I'm here in the flesh. <laughs> also, you better believe, when Junebug found out what happened, he was there. I got this, I got this, I'll take them home, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> when they heard Nana was that crazy, they believe, you better believe they showed up. But we got there on time, and we got there in one piece, and that is the most ludicrous thing when you think back on it. You know, thinking back on it now, I know that there were neighbors looking out the window, you know? And you know, these days you see a blind woman taking her grandkids, you'll call the police. But, you know, this is North Carolina. It's back in the country. You know, they out there like, there goes Ovita, taking them kids to the barbershop, you know. <laughs> Ain't she blind? Yeah, she blind. <laughs> How come he didn't help out? I couldn't help out. My stories was on. Y'all remember them stories? So this is how we often want to do our Christian experience. We all trying to get to the kingdom. We don't want to read the word for ourselves. We either willfully mm -hmm, or enslaved blind. Going like this right here. Now, Elder Muldrow, if you see something, let me know. Pastor, if you see a sign, holler out so we can all get to the kingdom together. Not in this day and age. Now, there's nothing wrong with Elder Modro breaking a little bit of light if he sees something to us. Hey, check this out, what I've seen. But the time has come for us to study the word for ourselves because the fire. I'm off the PowerPoint. Now I'm just going to preach And so here we are in the plain of Dura, standing in the shadow of a golden image whose very existence is an affront to the God of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar has invited everybody that is anybody to come into the plain of Dura. And the instructions are simple and they are clear. When you hear the music play, you need to bow down. When the band begins to play, you need to bend at the knee and worship Babylon. Or I will burn you in this furnace of fire. It is so easy for us to look from the outside, but imagine yourself in that situation 
where your liberty is under fire. And it is told to you that if you don't refrain from your observation of the seventh day, if you do not refrain from putting God first in your life, if you do not do these things, you will be burned in the furnace. What would we do? Now you can talk to the pastor. He has a theory about where Daniel was at this time. But we are told that there were three. Praise God for the few. Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, who were there in the plain of Dura that day. And when the music began to play, everyone, you could hear the rustle of skirts and hymns as everyone got down on one knee and then didn't stop there, laid their faces to the ground before this image. It was quite a sight to behold to see these dignitaries, these dignified people in their best clothes laying in the dirt before Satan. But there were three. And the word of God says that they stood. And I want you to think about it. They didn't really have to do it that way. When everybody bowed down to the image, those three Hebrew boys could have said, oh, I got a time of shoe. Let me just get down here and handle this. They, they still bowing? Is the music still playing? The three Hebrew boys could have tried to find their way to the edge of the crowd so that it was not as noticeable when they stood. But every now and then, church, God calls upon us to stand. Every now and then, saints, it is not enough just to serve God by omission. Sometimes you got to stand. Every now and then, we can't have a dead man's mentality about keeping God's law. What's a dead man's mentality? You ever notice that a dead man can seem to keep many of the commandments? A dead man won't lie. He won't steal. He won't cheat. A dead man can even rest on the Sabbath day. And many of us are like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to lay over here. I'm not going to stand up because I don't want to stand out. Maybe no one will notice me, but sometimes you have to stand. And the three Hebrew heroes, they stood. And the story says that somebody ran to Nebuchadnezzar and said, King, didn't you say... There's always somebody. Count on it. Somebody is always watching you. That's why you must be a witness at all times. Because they could have reported something else to the king. But praise God, they said, King, there are three who are standing in the plain of Dura. Didn't you say that if they didn't bow down, you would roast them in the fire? And the king said, yes, bring them. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Hananiah, Azariah, forgot the other one, Mishael, came before the king. And the king said, now look, maybe you didn't understand what I said. So I'm going to give you another chance. We're going to twist it around this way here. You stand over on that end. That way nobody will have to see you. 
And we're going to play this music again. And when the music plays, you need to bow down to my image. Sometimes, church, the world will take the things that we ought not do and try to twist it around in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know, I shouldn't eat that. Well, what if I just scrape it off? Hmm? Well, I'm not supposed to do that. Well, what if we just take it down a notch? It won't be so bad. But the three Hebrew boys said, it does not matter how many times you send us out there. It doesn't matter how you word it, Nebuchadnezzar. We will never bow down to your image. And even if you put us in the fire and God decides to let us crispify, it's been worth serving Jesus. That is the mentality you will have when you have been clear-minded and when you have studied the signs and when you have been standing at every opportunity, standing for Jesus. I like to believe that the three Hebrew boys had stood for Jesus so much that their body didn't even know how to bend down. The music played and they went like this right here. And they said, King, I'm saying I can't bow. But what I mean is I can't bow because I'm so used to serving God. My body went on autopilot. And the king was mad. His countenance was changed. I like to take that to mean that when you looked at him, the devil behind him began to show through. And he went. And he got some of the strongest men in his army. And here are our heroes. After all this time, the fire. After all the studying, the fire, the preparation, the concentration, at last the fire was upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar took his strongest men and they bound the three Hebrew heroes with ropes as tightly as possible. It was overkill, but Nebuchadnezzar was mad. And they took those boys to the furnace and threw them in to the fire. Now the word of God says that when they threw the boys in, the men who threw them in fell down dead. Because Nebuchadnezzar had heated the furnace up to seven times hotter than normal, overkill such that when the men who bound them threw them into the fire, they fell down dead. Now, when you light a fire in an enclosed space, mm -hmm, the fire has nowhere to go, so it begins to heat the air in the room. The air in the room gets hotter and hotter and hotter as the fire burns, and eventually, the room reaches something that's called the flashpoint. Now, when something reaches the flash point, that means the air has gotten so hot that everything catches fire just like this. Whether or not the fire is near you, when you've reached the flash point, you begin to burn. So I believe that when Nebuchadnezzar had the furnace heated up so hot, the air inside the furnace had reached the flash point. It was superheated air. Now here's the problem with superheated air. If you walk into a room that has superheated air and you breathe it in, that superheated air goes into your body and it will incinerate your lungs from the inside. 
This is a very common way that people who are fighting fires actually perish because they accidentally breathe that superheated air. So I believe that when the guards took the three Hebrew boys and threw them in the furnace, they accidentally got a breath of that superheated air and it incinerated them from the inside and they fell down dead. However, the three Hebrew boys didn't have no problem breathing. This implies that the air around them was somehow sanctified. How many know that when you stand for Jesus, even the air around you, your surroundings, your family, your church, and your community will be blessed just because of your testimony. It seems to me like those guards should have leaned a little closer and breathed some of that rarefied air. But the air around you will be sanctified. That's why the psalmist says that a thousand can fall dead at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. And it goes on to say, neither will any plague or disease come nigh thy dwelling. That means that theoretically, when your air is sanctified, the enemy could cough on you and you won't even catch cold. And that was the first miracle. Amen. So now the three Hebrew boys are in the fire. And the first thing that should have happened is the fire should have leaped on them, bone, on them boys and burned them down to the bone. But it did not. The second miracle is that God refrained the flames from burning his children. How many know when you stand for God, <laughs> he will refrain the flames from burning his children. Now see, I'm sure this confused the fire because the fire was working for Nebuchadnezzar, see? And I like to think that when the fire got into the, into the surroundings and it got ready to burn those Hebrew boys, the fire said, wait a minute. It looked around and it sensed the presence of Jehovah. The fire said, now, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, he's just like the floor manager, but we sense the presence of the CEO. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, he's just like, like a staff sergeant, but we are in the presence of the president of the United States. And the fire walked up to God and said, what would you have me do? Now think about it. God could have blown the fire out. Whew, happy birthday, Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't. He said, fire, I don't want you to go out. You just stay right there because I'm about to glorify my name up in here. And so he refrained the flames and he repurposed the flames so that his name would be glorified. That's what he'll do in our lives. Whatever it is the enemy threw at you, whatever the original intent was, God will repurpose it. Whatever was intended to bring you down, God repurposes it to lift you up. That's why the scripture says that all things work together for the good. And God refrained the flames. And that is the second miracle. Amen. But now we have a conundrum. Now we got a problem. See, the fire ain't got nothing to burn. And God has told the fire to keep on burning. Because he's about to glorify his name. 
Now see, I don't know if you know this about fires, but there are certain requirements to sustain flame. And one of them is fuel. That's why when there's a forest fire, they'll get ahead of the fire and clear out all the shrubbery and the grass so that when the fire gets there, it got nothing to burn. And then what happens? The fire will go out. So the fire said, Master, we're trying to do your will, Lord. We know we're working for you and you're trying to glorify your name and you told us to keep burning, but we ain't got no fuel, Father. How can we continue to do your will in these impossible circumstances? And that's when the third miracle comes along. God's power went into the fire and sustained the fire so that a miracle could be seen. And that's what God will do for you when you're doing his will. He will sustain you. Now let me take a little commercial break and talk about miracles two and three. Refrain and sustain. God's refraining power and his sustaining power. It's like the old one too. Because when you stand for God, he will refrain the fire so that you are not consumed. And then he will sustain you so that you are not extinguished. I think I can make it a little plainer than that, Pastor. When you stand for God, you won't burn up and you won't burn out because he'll refrain the flames and sustain you so that his name will be glorified. And that was the third miracle. Amen. And now, standing in the plain of Dura, God's people in the fire. The air is shimmering like this right here from the heat. And Nebuchadnezzar takes a step closer to the fire. And he leans forward. Did we not toss three into the furnace? Okay, yes, yes, we did. I count four. And the fourth. And the fourth looks like the Son of God. Amen. Now, this wasn't my original point, but I got choked up, so let me preach over here for a second. Something ought to be said for the fact that when we're in the fire, God don't send a telegram. He's there with us. Maybe you ain't been in the fire before, but for folk like me, thank you, Jesus, for being there with me. And he looked and he saw a fourth. And one might ask Elder Brown, how did he know what Jesus looked like? He'd never seen him before. I like to imagine that by the example that had been set forth by the three Hebrew heroes, by the witness that they had put forth, they were so Christ-like that he knew Jesus when he saw him. And so Nebuchadnezzar looked in there, saw the Son of God, 
walking around with his children, walking around in the fire, walking around in the furnace, and that sight went into his eyeballs and rattled around in his head and went down to that prideful heart and converted him on the spot, and that's the fourth miracle, amen, that God's ability to take our witness and use it to save others. And when we get into the midst of the fire, church, we can take them four miracles and them four amens and stick them together and pray a little prayer that sounds like this. Father, as I stand in the fire, I ask that you would protect the air around me, protect my family, protect my church and my community. Amen. And Lord, if you'd refrain the enemy from consuming me, amen. And Father, if you'd sustain me so that I can... Glorify your name. Amen. And lastly, when others see me, let them see you so we can all be in glory together. Amen. But it didn't just happen. Those children of God were clear-minded. Those children of God had studied the scripture for themselves. Those children of God had stood for Jesus and everything. And when they faced the fire, they were ready. Even in our everyday lives, we must continue this practice. In the small ways that we are assaulted and assailed by Satan, we must do this. We must remain clear of mind and avoid those things that would cloud our consciousness. We must crack this book open and study the word for ourselves. And when we are called upon, we need to stand. There's a true story about a little village that existed at the foot of a volcano around the turn of the 20th century. Scientists knew that the volcano was going to erupt, but because the little village was community-minded. And because they valued their culture, they would not leave. The volcano rumbled. It breathed. All of the signs were there, but they wouldn't leave. And then one day, the inevitable took place. In an impressive display of Mother Nation, Mother Nature flexing her muscles, that volcano erupted in a pyroclastic cloud that was 600 to 6,000 degrees. And the fire came down the mountainside and entered the village, and everyone perished. 
About a week later, the scientists were picking through the debris, going through the village, looking at the tragedy, reporting it by telegram and whatever means was available. And wouldn't you know, as they were going through the village, they found three. <laughs> they found three alive, but not just alive, but untouched by the fire. How is this possible? Who could survive such a tragedy? Well, as it turns out, these three were workers. They were miners, M-I-N-E-R. And they mined ore. So at the time of the volcanic eruption, they were underground. And because they were underground, the fire couldn't get them. What I'm saying is, because they were down in the soil, down among the boulders, among the slabs, among the stalactites and stalagmites, the fire couldn't get to them. I'm saying that because they were down among the limestone and among the sandstone and among the shale and among the granite, the fire couldn't get to them. Church, I'm saying because they'd been hid down in the rock, the fire could not burn them. When we hide ourselves in the rock, come what may, no matter how high the temperature, no matter how fast the wind, we will not be moved. My first appeal this morning is that we will rededicate ourselves to studying God's word. That we will hide ourselves in the rock. The pastor is going to be starting a prophecy series soon. Every week, we can tune in and learn about prophecy. This is an excellent time to dedicate ourselves to studying God's word. If you are willing to make that dedication, would you stand with me? Now we stand collectively, but God sees us individually. He looks at us each one by one and he sees your commitment. And there is nothing like breaking a promise with God. So beginning today, because we have stood, we are charged by the Holy Ghost to hide ourselves in the rock so that we will be ready. And lastly, I could never close out service without giving somebody an opportunity to rededicate himself or herself to Jesus. Jesus has been talking to you all week long. He brought you all the way from where you were to where you are here in church. And you know you need to rededicate. 
If that is you, slip on out your seat and come on down here with me. Praise the Lord, sister. Praise the Lord. I'm not going to go on forever. But don't miss this opportunity to rededicate yourself. Whatever it is, prayer, special prayer, special circumstances, reading the word of God, Bible study, whatever you need, God's got it. Come on down here and be a part of this special prayer. Anyone else? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Anyone? Give you a microphone. Pastor, would you pray for us, please? Praise the Lord. is none but the word of God and I don't know about you but I have been troubled are we standing for God today are we bowing to an idol God is calling somebody and I know that there are others in the midst that needs to be here I know God is moving in this place. Time is far spent. But there is a young man. There's a young woman that needs to be here. Your liberty is under fire. Will you stand for God today? This is serious time. It's a serious moment. This is your eternity. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. The devil does not discriminate. He wants you and he wants to keep you. And as we have heard the word preached by elder, it's time for you to come. It's time for you to step out. Lord, you want to say that I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. But all I know is that I need to surrender to God today. Just slip out of your pew. Slip out of the seat. Just come forward. God is calling somebody. God is calling somebody to come. He's calling you to take a stand. A decisive stand for God today won't you come won't you come as we're about to pray we want you to know that God he's watching just like those three Hebrew boys he's watching will you not come forward and stand for God today Surrender, rededicate to say enough to this world. I'm standing for you, the Lord. I'm standing for you today.
praise God as we stand to pray today feel free to slip out of your pews even as we pray let us pray father this is your time oh father you have placed us in the frame of time you have placed us right here and lord whatever we are going through you have designed even for us to go through it because you know father that we are able to stand you know that we will be able to make it through through your power and I pray, Father, that you will please bless each and every one of us. We're standing today because we're saying, Lord, we cannot do it. We cannot survive without you. And so, Father, we just ask that you will please give us that staying power. Help us not to trust in our own ability, but to trust in your availability. I pray, Father, that you will please bless each and every person that stood up here, that came out, that's standing here, Father. We're saying enough, enough. Lord, please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, as we struggle through this world, through life. Help us to know that we're not alone, but we have a Savior that stood for us. A Savior that died for us. A Savior that resurrected for us. A Savior that ascended to heaven for us and that is interceding for us. And ultimately will come back for us. Keep us now, Father. Help us to have this hope. This hope that you have it all under control. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We worship. And we adore you, Father. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God bless you. May God bless you. Blessings. 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 we've been blessed here tonight today this afternoon thank you elder johnson may we all stand for the benediction please yes now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise god our savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Just want to point out we have a meal next door provided for all those who are going to stay. You may be seated. And before the ushers reverently lead you out, the meal next door, and then we're going to resume at 3.30. We, yes. At 3.30, for all the families that are able to come back, we have a uh, free gift from the Religious Liberty Ministry team. It's the Amazing Facts, Revelation, The Bride, The Beast, and Babylon. So for those that want to come back this afternoon, you'll be able to receive this gift. We thank you, and God bless you. 
And we also have the um, Harvest Festival that's going to take place at 530. God bless you and thank you.